So as I said, we're going to pick up in chapter 7, but just as a means of brief review to kind of set up where we're going to pick up probably in verse 13. If you remember last week, we, we touched on um, the idea of, of their godly sorrow that led to repentance in verses 8 and 9, uh, and talked a little bit about um, how Paul approached them from a gentleness and from from uh, um, approaching them in his letters rather than coming in abruptly or, or forcing them to obey. Uh, but we also talked a little bit about how we, as we're approaching people, should have that same gentleness, but also sometimes, as, it's, as we read in Jude, um, pull people, rip people from the fire. Uh, so be, I guess, a little bit more forceful in how we approach people when they're in sin. <clears throat> we talked a little bit about, <clears throat> in verses 10 and following, the idea of godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a sorrow that leads to that repentance, leads to turning from sin, whereas a worldly sorrow, as we read in these verses, leads to death. Um, then we, we talked about their earnestness. Um, we talked a little bit about <clears throat> the, um, the idea of earnestness as far as their carefulness, their diligence, their sincerity, as some versions might read, in addressing the sin. Uh, and these are a couple of verses that talk about that fruit of repentance uh, that, that is connected to that godly sorrow. Uh, fruit consistent with, with, with repentance, uh, Acts 26, doing works that befit repentance. Uh, and all of this shows for us that right approach, <clears throat> that right idea in correcting error, that earnestness, that diligence, that, that enthusiasm to make sure that, that we correct and, and remove sin from our lives, but <clears throat> as is the case with the Corinthians, that we remove it from within our midst also. And so we can, we're going to continue in verse 13. Uh, so let's read verses, um, I guess we'll start out in verse 12 and we'll read through the end of the chapter uh, and try to finish up our thoughts on chapter 7 before we transition into chapter 8. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 12 so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. <clears throat> for this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. And his affection abounds all the more towards you, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. So here, uh, if we remember some of the things we talked about earlier in the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul was anxious in searching and desiring to understand whether the, the Corinthians had responded to his first letter. We talked about how as he traveled, he didn't hear word from Titus, and here we're reading of the the communication that Titus provided, the comfort that Titus provided in the positive report um, around the Corinthians. Uh, so obviously Titus's report was very positive, <clears throat> showing how the Corinthians had reacted to that first letter, um, how they had had, as we just talked about in verses 11 
and following earnestness and, and uh, diligence and carefulness in desiring to do the word of God, to serve, the word, to, to serve God and to make corrections uh, related to the things that, that Paul had communicated to them in his first letter. Um, this also shows how they had through... Um, I think through that first letter, accepted and respected Paul as as the authority that he was speaking as the word, <clears throat> speaking the word of God, and similarly, Titus transferring or communicating that message to them. Um, and so, I think in, it's also interesting. I think in the latter part of this, in verse. 15, how you had received him at the end of verse 15, how you had received him, uh, that is Titus, with fear and trembling. So again, that respect and that readiness to respond to the instructions that had been given to them. <clears throat> it should be an example to us. Uh, it should be an example to us how we should approach um, when we're confronted with our sin or when we see, when we see sin amongst us. Uh, that idea of fear and trembling uh, obviously, we know the passages that talk about it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a, of a righteous God. And so that's the idea is we need to not fear God in that, that it's an overwhelming or, or a, um, overcoming fear, but a fear that leads to that repentance, a fear that leads to, um, to us doing the right thing. Um, and in these verses, it talks about this report that had been provided uh, provided comfort to to both Paul as well as Titus. So, Nathan. I was going to say, uh, one thing that stood out to me was verse 16, when he says, therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. And you, you look, go back to the first letter, Paul couldn't say that, you know, at that time when, when he wrote the first letter, because all of the Area that they were in, mm -hmm. but because of that transformation and and the reverence and stuff you just talked about, Paul was at the point now to where he could say that about them that he had confidence in them because they had bared the fruit of that repentance and and the same thing goes with us. You know, for us to gain the confidence of even our brethren, we have to show that that same thing. Yeah, yeah, and it, I mean he talks about boasting in them, um, and and I think back to some of our, our lesson this last Wednesday night as far as having a good name um, and how valuable that is as far as your reputation. And the only way to ensure that we keep that good name is by doing what we're supposed to do and making those corrections <clears throat> as, you know, there are errors. Uh, and so, I, again, I think that, that those are some of the things I thought about also. Chris. I apologize if, uh, if this point has already been made. It's actually from verse 8 of chapter 7. Uh, basically, we, he, he shared with us, uh, with, with the Corinthians, the things that he suffered through in a different chapter. And here he shares his, uh, his experience with correcting someone, with writing this letter that it caused, he knew it was going to cause him sorrow. But he gives us the step-by-step -step of, yeah, I know this is going to hurt, but look what happened. And this is uh, to give them hope if they need to do their own correcting. And as we need to, because mm -hmm. we, we do every day here. So. No, I, I, I was one of the points that I was going to make as far as that transition. Earlier in this same chapter, the sorrow, and, and again, I think it, we talked a little bit about it last week, but the sorrow 
I think was, as all of us would feel as we're trying to correct someone, it's not a fun process. Uh, it's not a, a pleasant process, but I think that that sorrow was transferred or transitioned into joy, and, and the same thing would apply to us. As we make those corrections in ourselves or we, we lead others to make the corrections that they're supposed to, that leads to joy um, because you know, we're able to continue to have fellowship with them, but, but more importantly, they have that fellowship with God and, and are living the life that they're supposed to. So I think it's a great point. Uh, but that sorrow of the letter in verse 8 led, created repentance. And again, it goes back to some of the same things we had talked about um, in our, the brief re review as far as that godly sorrow versus a worldly sorrow. The godly sorrow led to repentance. It was painful for a moment, uh, painful for Paul, painful, I'm sure, for the, the church at Corinth, but it led to comfort for the church at Corinth. It led to comfort, um, we can see in verses 6 and 13 for Paul, verses 7 and 13 for Titus, um, verses 13 for the church at Corinth. So that repentance, that godly sorrow, uh, led to comfort uh, on behalf of all the parties involved. Um, and kind of to Chris's point, it led to not only comfort, but it led to joy. You know, I rejoice that in everything. So uh, that joy that they had done what they were supposed to. And again, I think it's a great example for us that as we are making corrections in our lives, as we see others making corrections in their lives, it should lead to us having that same joy and that same rejoicing. Um, so uh, I think great points. Other comments before we continue on to chapter 8. <clears throat> okay. So let's continue on in chapter 8. And as we've done in the past, what I'd like to do is read the entirety of chapter 8. Um, and, and hopefully you guys are finding this useful as we spend some time in our classes each day each week, um, actually reading through the entirety of this. Again, I think it gives, helps me from a contextual standpoint, but we'll begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 1, and <clears throat> I might have to take a sip as we move through. My sinuses are bothering me, uh, something blooming out there, but chapter 8, verse 1, now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with such entreaty for a favor to participate for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this not as we had expected, but they first gave, to the, gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Consequently, we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you his gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterances and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, th that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor 
that you through his poverty might become rich. And I gave my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago not only to do this, but also to desire to do it, but now finish doing it also, that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a man has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being supplied for their want, that their abundance also may become a supply for your want, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted your appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. And we have sent along with him the brother whose fame in, these, in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself, and to show our readiness. Take precaution that no one should discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men." We have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because he has great confidence in you. Sorry, because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the church, churches a glory to Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. So, uh, I didn't advance my slides. Um, but he starts off talking in chapter 8 about the generosity of the churches at, in Macedonia. But before we get into the chapter, we think about at a high level, uh, chapter eight and nine, I think is a kind of a natural transition to maybe not a different topic, but a, another topic that Paul is, is wanting to address with them. If you think about the preceding, the bulk of the preceding chapters really were addressing um, Paul and defending himself against these false teachers uh, but also arming the Corinthians, preparing them to defend themselves against these false teachers, these Judaizing teachers. Now he transitions, as we've said in chapter 8 and 9, to, to the collection for the saints and the needy saints. Um, and references uh, the collection for the, the church in Judea, in Jerusalem, um, there could be any number of reasons for this need. Most people point to there being a famine in this time period. Um, and so the, the church in Antioch had sent funds uh, in Acts chapter 11 for, for potentially a similar need. Uh, but And after that, that benevolence from the church in, in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas set out on their first missionary journey. So Paul now encourages the church at Galatia and Macedonia and Corinth to provide relief to these Christians who are in need in Judea. Um, Paul encouraged them also to choose their own messenger 
eyes we're going to talk about a little bit here to alleviate any concerns with the funds being used as they would have them to be used. And so again, I think it's just a really a great example for us on how we uh, should implement benevolence, uh, who we should implement and use the church's benevolence for. And so we're going to speak a little bit about that, but I would encourage everyone, if you have comments, to, to by all means speak up, um, because I think it's a great not only example of of the spirit on how we need to be giving, but also a true practical example on how the church should function uh, relative to giving and addressing the needs of saints uh, as they come up. So in verses one through six, <clears throat> we see Paul talking about and providing an example of the Macedonians, giving an example of, of what true and sincere benevolence uh, true and sincere giving would look like. Uh, he makes known to them how the, the, the church at Macedonia, even in their extreme poverty, gave and gave beyond their means. Um, you think about this kind of back to some of my comments setting up chapter 8. Churches in Macedonia were, were established during Paul's second missionary journey, so fairly young churches uh, and in Acts 16 and 17, makes reference to some of the afflictions, some of the difficulties that these churches were enduring. Um, but in all of that, they still gave and gave beyond their means and out of their poverty. Uh, and, and he speaks to, I think, some of the why uh, in, in referencing um, in Verse 1, the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. So again, I think throughout this chapter and the following chapter, chapter 9, we see Paul talking, speaking to, pointing to the grace of God. So God is who has enabled this giving and this ability. God has enabled or, or given that, that spirit to the church at, in Macedonia and should to the church in Corinth to, to give and give generously. Um, so all of this was granted by God, and that idea of grace of God kind of bookends this whole section. So I just referenced in chapter 8, verse 1, but then if you turn over to the, the latter part of chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 8, uh, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, uh, that always having all sufficiency in everything. And then in verse 14 of chapter 9, while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for your for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. So we see again not only in those passages but throughout these two chapters Paul pointing to the grace of God, the generosity, uh, the blessings that God provides to us and and how we should think about those blessings. And and I think that's the 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 foundation for the Macedonians generosity. And again, I think Paul is pointing to it for the Corinthians, but also for us, obviously, to show liberality um, with their giving. Um, I think in these verses also you see um, you see the great ordeal affliction back to chapter eight, verse two, and the abundance of joy in their deep poverty overflowing the wealth of their liberality. So you see their willingness to give, even though they they had less. That sincerity, that simplicity, um, I think that that single-mindedness of the church um, in supporting not only their local members, but 
but other Christians in, in need. Um, I thought about the widow's might. Um, and again, in her poverty, she gave everything. I think about the Macedonians. In their poverty, they gave and beyond. I think it's a lesson for us. Uh, they weren't giving out of excess. They weren't giving out of their surplus. Um, and I think about how the Corinthians, he goes on to say, have been blessed with excess. And so they need to use that excess. And I think it's a, a strong lesson for us because obviously we're blessed to excess. And so how are we using that? And that's not only contributing back in the baskets in the back, but how are we supporting other Christians here and other places? Um, you know, it's easy to see within the, the United States that we're all fairly blessed. And there aren't very many people that are in dramatic need, but internationally there are. So can we do more? You know, you think about these churches, Corinth, Macedonia, fairly close to Judea, but they're kind of worlds apart from a societal standpoint uh, and from the at least the world around them. And so there weren't connections necessarily between the probably in all likelihood, the churches in Judea that were heavily Jewish and these churches in, in, uh, in uh, Macedonia and in Corinth that were probably heavily Gentile. Uh, and so I think, again, that's another, in my mind, with these two chapters, a foundational something that Paul is trying to address with them. And again, I think it should be a lesson for us is it's easy for us to get in our little area and say, this is who I'm focusing on. And this is the people close to me. This is the people I identify with. But the churches in Corinth, the churches in Macedonia, were looking beyond that and looking for churches Christians that were in need, maybe outside of who would normally be the, who they have those connections to. Uh, and so again, I think it's a great example for us on how we should think about our wealth, kind of back to the widow's might and how the Macedonians approached it. Not giving out of our excess, but giving, giving so that we'll go on and talk about a little bit later on so that there's more equality. So when there's need, that we address it and use our, our wealth to, to help those who are in need. So I'm going to pause there and take a sip and see if there's any comments around those, those thoughts. John? Just thinking about what may have uh, prompted the need of those Christians in Judea. You mentioned Acts chapter 11, that famine then, that was in the reign of Claudius. History tells us there was at least four famines during his reign. So that could have contributed to this need as well. Also, if you read Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about those Jewish Christians uh, being imprisoned and their property being confiscated. They were suffering a lot of persecution. You imagine a Christian living in an area totally controlled by the Jewish economy, considered them to be blasphemers and worthy of death, so it could have been very difficult to support your family in that kind of situation. So that could be contributing to why they were in so much need at this time. Yeah, and, and I think to add to that, I mean, the property taken, but I mean, I think we all know from a background standpoint, those, uh, those that lived in that Jewish society, a lot was done in the synagogues from a, even from a business standpoint and from a a connectivity between that society. And so if you were suddenly removed 
from that society because of your faith, it makes it difficult to, to your point, John, to, to make a living. You know, suddenly people aren't buying your goods anymore. Suddenly people aren't willing to trade with you anymore. So there's a number of different things that, that the scriptures point to that, that you know, give us a, a lot of background on what these difficulties could be. So very good point. So um, they willingly gave, uh, and again, so I think this is the other um, example that we can take from this, um, is wasn't like they had to be prompted. It wasn't like Paul had to push the Macedonians. Even though in their poverty and their difficulty, they willingly gave, they urged us for the favor. They said, do us a favor and let us give. And so again, I think it speaks to how we should approach our giving. Uh, and I think this church is extremely generous. Um, you know, we look for those opportunities, but I think we should look even more. I look even more, and again, beyond just our circles. Let's look for other opportunities and, and urge um, for the favor of doing good. Now, I think the flip side of it is it makes me think about Oftentimes, people want to do good, but people won't let them do good. And so the flip side of that is as we have needs, let's let people help us. Um, and I'll be the first to admit, I'm probably guilty of that on multiple fronts uh, as far as, okay, no, I can handle this. My stuff's minor. Well, people want to help. And so let's let them help. So there's, got, there's two sides to it. We should seek ways of helping people, but then flip side of it is we should accept the help. Um, and so, um, continuing on though, I think it's really important. The other point in verses three through five, uh, that they gave of themselves, they gave themselves to the Lord first. Uh, they gave willingly from their possessions, not prompted, uh, in verse five, not as they expected. I think Paul is saying because of their poverty, because of their difficulty, he probably didn't expect a lot from them, but they gave beyond that. They begged for the opportunity, but first and foremost, uh, they committed themselves to the Lord. Uh, in verse five, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. And so I think about Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 being that living and holy sacrifice ourselves. Um, we know passages in, in um, Psalms and in the Old Testament, if, if he had desired, he, God desires a broken and contrite spirit, not a, a physical sacrifice. Should we have physical sacrifices? Should we give? Yes. That's not what I'm saying. But first and foremost is making sure that we are giving ourselves and, uh, and committing ourselves to the Lord. And so I think it's a great, great, opera, uh, great example for us here to, to, to look at and realize that it doesn't matter how much we give physically if spiritually we aren't in the place we need to be. If spiritually we haven't committed and given up the, the ways of the world, if spiritually we aren't living as that holy sacrifice and sacrificing our own desires and sacrificing our own will to serve God. Uh, and so again, I think it's a great example for us. Um, so continuing on in verses seven through eight, uh, talks about um, 
But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge, in all earnestness and in love we inspired in you, see that you abound in the gracious works also. So that graciousness, that grace abounding in them. Um, You know, here again, I was talking to David on our drive in, my David, who's back in the high school class. It's like, okay, when it says grace here, what is he speaking to? I think he's speaking to these, these physical blessings that they can provide. Obviously, grace is a big subject, and usually when we're thinking about it, it's relative to God. And again, I think this is broader than just the physical gifts, but I think specific to the context here, it is talking more about the the physical gifts. Usually when we're talking about the grace of God, we're thinking about forgiveness, and we're thinking about um, how God provided his son as a gracious way of, of forgiveness. Here, again, I think that grace is talking more about the physical things, and, and everything we have comes from God. Everything that we have is a result of his graciousness, and so how are we using that graciousness? How are we using that gift that he's provided for us um, to support others? Again, it's not about me. It's not about me collecting for myself and preparing for myself. Those gracious gifts that he's given us should be directed at those around us and supporting those people in need. Um, the willingness to use those gifts shows us as good stewards um, of what he's blessed us with. And, you know, I think we can flip over to f- f- chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Now I say, he who sows sparingly shall reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully shall reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he's purposed in your heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Again, as we, as we sow, we're going to reap. Um, as we are given these things, these gracious gifts from the Lord, we should use them and not keep them for ourselves. Not, not just hoard up, as the met- for the metaphor in chapter 9, hoard up those seeds. We should be sowing those seeds and using those seeds uh, to help those around us. When I think of the graces he's talking here about, I, I look over to Second Peter Uh, the first chapter where he lists these things that we are to continue to grow in, uh, including the last point there, charity, but also brotherly love and kindness and all the other things. Uh, Those are the graces that we should show to each other and to the the world uh, as we carry the gospel. Yeah, very good point, very good scripture that ties in well. Other thoughts on that? Okay, so it transitions, not transitions, it continues on in verse 9, talking about um, Christ as our example. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that, that through his poverty, that you through his poverty might become rich. And so again, Christ is our perfect example. Um, and I thought about Philippians chapter 2. In fact, let's turn over to that real quick. Uh, Just a few pages over. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of the bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so he did not hold on, Christ is our example, to that, that wealth as to continue kind of the conversation that we're talking about in 2 Corinthians 8. But he gave that up. He became poor because of us. You think about what he gave up, gave up, you know, sitting at the right hand of God, he gave up a heaven uh, and took on this weak body for us. And again, a great example on, on how we should view the things of this world. Things of this world are temporary. If we use this example of Christ and apply it in our lives, things of this world don't matter if, if we're focused on heaven doesn't matter if we're poor here, if we're lacking here, then, uh, but in the end, <clears throat> our focus is where it needs to be. And so, again, Christ became poor so that we might become rich, and rich spiritually. Um, so, again, I think it's a, obviously, Christ is the perfect example for us in all things, and, and is true here also as far as how he gave uh, gave up everything for us and gave so that we might become rich, rich spiritually. Um, continuing on in verses 11 and 12, but now finish doing it also just as it, there was the readiness to desire it. So there may be also the completion of it by your ability. So the completion of the work that was referenced uh, back in 1 Corinthians, uh, the completion of the, their desire to provide for this need. For if the readiness is present, it's acceptable according to what a man has, not according to what he does not have. So with this, um, they're supposed to give according to their needs, um, not according to what they don't have. Uh, so according to what they have, not what they don't have. So I think it's interesting here when we think about comparison or a contrast to the old law, there's a set you're supposed to tie this amount. Uh, I think Paul here and, and in 1 Corinthians is, and in other places in the New Testament, is, is very much seeing that transition from that set 10%, and we all know it was beyond 10% in the Old Testament, but that set amount to the amount that they purposed in their heart, we've already referenced in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, um, but also according to their ability. Rather than saying you got to give ten percent now, it's it's been it's been given to us as well as the church at Corinth, according to their ability, but also as they purposed in their heart. Uh, so Paul is encouraging to finish, encouraging the Corinthians to finish what they started. They started, they set the plans in place in First Corinthians chapter sixteen to to make a collection for these saints in need, um, but uh, he's prompting them, encouraging them to finish that plan. Um, so without action, without them doing something, their plan wouldn't be completed. Um, and so he continues on in verses 13 through 15, where I want to spend a little bit of time, a little bit more time this morning, um, talking about not, uh, not so, that, so that a group would have ac excess or become rich, as some versions might say, or become so that they have abundance, but so that there's equality. So let's read verses 13 through 15 and talk about this for a couple of minutes. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. 
At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their want, that their abundance also may become a supply for your want, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. So this wasn't a burden that that Paul was placing on them, uh, nor that God places on us so that a church would have excess, so that they would become would have ease, um, but that their abundance, the church at Corinth, or our abundance might address someone's lack. So someone is lacking the ability to put food on the table, to put a roof over their head, to put clothes on their back. Uh, That's how this is applied. It's not so that there should be equality in bank accounts, uh, although it might not be a bad thing. It's about making sure that the needs are addressed. Uh, The, the, basic needs of, of life that are addressed. Um, so in times, as is probably the case with Corinth and with us, there are those that have more material wealth, and then there are those that have less. The church at Jerusalem and Judea had less of no fault of their own. Uh, it was just a product of of what was happening in all likelihood, the, uh, the famine, but then other things related to their faith. It's on us who have excess, who have wealth to provide for those needs. Um, and so again, it's not, it's not to create ease on behalf of them. It's to address those, those basic needs. Chris. This makes me think of the, uh, the parable of the talents which we normally say, okay, yeah, they were talking about money there, but it applies to all the other things. But it, it also applies to money, um, uh, where he says uh, in verse uh, Matthew 25, verse 26, but the Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I, I have not scattered seed. So he gave them this money with the um, the purpose of, invest this so I get more when I return. So really, whatever we have, we are supposed to be investing it for the Lord with his priorities in mind. He doesn't care about growing money necessarily. He cares about, you know, helping one another and the uh, the priorities that he has. Yeah, being good stewards of that. And and again, it's not, it's not ours, it's his. And so how are we using that? And I think the other thing I think about kind of related to your point is, it's very easy for us to get become worried with the world around us and to think I need to save up and I need to prepare for every eventuality. And don't get me wrong, we should prepare and we should, you know, think about how we're using our money to, to provide for, for our family and those around us. We should think about how we're saving money for when there is a need so that we can readily address that need. But you know, do we come to a point where we're, we're so worried about accumulating wealth and preparing for every eventuality that we forget that God's providing all of this and God's going to take care of us? And it doesn't matter how much we save, if it's his will, then we're going we're gonna to have difficulties. It's, it's, if it's his will, we can lose everything, but he's still going to take care of us. Uh, sometimes I think we trust too much in our wealth and don't realize that all we have comes from him and it's all temporary. Yeah, I think just to build off of that, I've always seen this as like a real critical hinge point for the church as a whole. So you've got first-generation Christians, you've got poorer Christians in Macedonia that have given 
and let's let's call it rich Christians uh, in Corinth. And there's, to me, there's got to be word around that there's a famine or, or there's some need in Jerusalem. And everybody knows that the rich people in Corinth have money they should be giving. And a year ago, they had started a plan. If Paul went to Jerusalem without money from Corinth, like that would be, that would be a real big blow, I think, to Paul's credibility, to the credibility of the, of the church movement. It's like when it counted, were you there? And I think that's what Paul's getting at. It's like, look, you need to be generous you know, for the sake of equality and also like ultimately reciprocity eventually, like if you need help eventually as well. I think it's just, uh, and I think Paul senses this too. This may be Bill reading into this a little bit, but I think Paul senses, you know, money's a big deal. Money's a big deal to anybody. Uh-huh. So you got a chance here to, to give this movement of Christianity some real teeth if you finish what you started uh, when it comes to, to, to giving. Uh, and I think to, to add to that, I think that Paul is feeling that and trying to communicate the need for unity across the entire body. You know, Jew, Greek, we're all the same. And so if there's a need, again, uh, kind of back to some of my original points, even if the need isn't just right next door to us in this country, we need to have that same unity, whether it's across the country or across, around the world, around how we use what we have. We're wealthy. Same way the, Corinth, the church at Corinth was wealthy. It's, it does, it's not a, and again, not that we should have, worry so much about the look, but it's not a good look when you got a wealthy congregation and then you got people who can't put food on their tables. And so I, I do think that it's more than just you reading into it because I see the same thing uh, with how he's communicating these things to the church at Corinth. And so great point. He goes on to talk a little bit about this example from Exodus 16, uh, and those that had, um, going back to that, that verse, um, uh, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Um, and so again, some may have been able to, in, in Exodus, gather more or maybe needed to gather more because their family was larger, but some may have been unable to gather as much. Uh, and that was provided for them. But it didn't matter how much you gathered. You only got what you needed. We remember from that account, uh, if you kept too much, was it any use the next day? No. It rotted and worms were in it. And so that's the idea, I think, of the way we should be viewing our wealth is we can accumulate more, but it's not going to matter. It's all going to rot. It's all going to rust. We should be using that uh, to help those that, were, that are in need. So I think we've got, had a second bell, and so I'll pause here, uh, and we'll pick up in, um, in, I guess, verse 16 or so next week. Thank you.